Um, labor really hurts. The type of pain changes as labor progresses. During the first stage of labor, visceral pain usually predominates. Nociceptive stimuli from the cervix, the uterus, and the adnexa, and even the pelvic ligaments are transmitted mainly by sympathetic fibers to the posterior nerve root ganglia at T10 through L1. This pain is a classic referred pain because it's transmitted from one part of the body, like the cervix and the uterus and the adnexa, and it's projected to other parts of the body, like the lower abdomen and the back. As with other forms of visceral pain, this referred pain is slowly transmitted, it's poorly confined, and is frequently radiated to the abdomen, the lower back, and even the rectum. During the first stage of labor and the early second stage of labor, distension and traction of the pelvic organs becomes a predominant source of pain. This pain stimulus is transmitted predominantly by the pudendal nerve through the sacral plexus to the posterior nerve root ganglia at spinal levels S2 to S4. This pain is very intense and sharp and is localized mainly to the perineum the anus, and lower parts of the sacrum, thighs, and the upper parts of the legs. The second stage of labor, while the fetus descends, induces pain owing to distension of the perineal structures. There's no doubt that the gold standard for labor analgesia is the labor epidural, and we recently talked about that in a previous episode called Epidural-Related Maternal Fever. But some women may favor a non-invasive approach, at least initially. So in this episode, we're going to talk about nitrous oxide. It's got a crazy history, and I thought we would dive into some of that history, its mechanism of action, and even some updates from the American College of Nurse Midwifery and even ACOG with an important safety message about nitrous oxide in labor. How is this inhalational agent tied to the Colt 45 handgun? And what does this gas have to do with vitamin B12? Are there any safety warnings out there about this gas? And does it even work? We're going to get to these answers and more in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Nitrous oxide, which is formed from two nitrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, is both a natural compound found in the atmosphere and a synthetic product. This gas was initially discovered around 1772 by the English scientist and philosopher Joseph Priestley. A couple of decades passed before its sedative and pain-killing effects began to be appreciated. Humphrey Davy, another British scientist, experimented on himself and his friends with this gas, and even though Davy noted that the gas might be used, quote, with advantage during surgical operations, end quote, no one thought to try it for a surgical procedure for almost 50 years. Instead, it became widely known as a tool for entertainment. Yeah, it was laughing gas, and there were nitrous oxide parties happening all over the place. 
These were also a great source of revenue for certain entrepreneurs who would take people out of a crowd and use laughing gas on them, nitrous oxide, to have them kind of perform as a spectacle. (laughs) These took place in traveling medicine shows and in carnivals all throughout the UK. For a small fee, people could laugh and act silly while they breathed in this intoxicating gas. Samuel Colt was one such entrepreneur who profited from nitrous oxide in these nitrous oxide parties. He then used that money from nitrous oxide and his parties to develop a prototype pistol now called the infamous Colt 45. Is that crazy or what? Then in 1844 in Hartford, Connecticut, a local dentist named Horace Wells attended one of these nitrous oxide parties. And Dr. Wells was fascinated when he saw one of the participants take nitrous oxide, kind of stumble around and actually hurt his leg. And he was completely oblivious to his bleeding leg because he was under laughing gas. Well, Wells then thought we could actually do something with this for dentistry. Dr. Wells wanted to test this possibility, so he later asked to be given nitrous oxide while another local dentist extracted one of Wells' own molars. And Dr. Wells experienced no pain during the procedure. And the birth of nitrous oxide as a dental and medical painkiller had arrived. But the story doesn't end well. That following year, after Dr. Wells had gained some more experience with this gas, demonstrated this discovery of this inhalational anesthetic at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Now, the patient that Dr. Wells chose was anesthetized for a tooth extraction. Unfortunately, the gas had not taken full effect and or the mask had slipped and the patient screamed during the procedure. The crowd booed Wells off the stage. This public humiliation eventually led Dr. Wells to lose his reputation as a dentist and finally to his suicide three years later. Tragic! Ironically, 150 years after his premature death, his discovery would be adopted by dental practices worldwide and Wells would be honored as, quote, the discoverer of anesthesia, end quote. Now, don't confuse William Morton with Dr. Wells. Dr. William Morton was another dentist who went on to successfully demonstrate the anesthetic effect of ether while extracting a molar also in Boston. Now, Morton gets all of the attention because his procedure worked. Although Morton used ether rather than nitrous oxide because he was afraid that it wouldn't work just like it did with Wells and also because ether, he felt, was much more reliable. And yes, while ether provided a much deeper sedation than nitrous oxide, it was also much more combustible. Well, that's interesting for dentistry, um, but that's not where we work in women's health. (laughs) That's not the history that we're interested in, but that is a history of nitrous oxide. However, the history of nitrous oxide for obstetrics is just as interesting. The first reported use of nitrous oxide for labor dates back to 1881 when Stanislav Kliklovich studied the effects of premixed 80% nitrous oxide in oxygen on laboring women. Now, this came after the use of chloroform by Queen Victoria's delivery in 1853 and 1857. So let's just say a quick word about that. 80% nitrix. Man, that's a lot. (laughs) 
Because currently, what's in use in commercial venues is 50% nitrous oxide and 50% oxygen. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But isn't that crazy? It was 80%. And this was much more favorable than the use of chloroform that Queen Victoria had used. Chloroform was highly volatile. And also, people who would touch it or be around it would also pass out. (laughs) So nitrous oxide was much more personal and easier to deliver than the chloroform alternative. Its routine use became more widely available after an apparatus for self-administration was developed in 1934. This was certified as safe by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in 1936. And in the U.S., nitrous oxide was originally administered in the 1930s using concentrations, again, as high as 80%. It was also frequently combined with other sedating medications, including opioids, barbiturates, or benzos. And that's a big no-no today, and we're going to discuss that ACOG warning later on in the episode. The combination of nitrous oxide with these sedating medications can result in significant risk and significant sedation. With the rise in neuroaxial labor analgesia during the 1940s and 1950s, use of nitrous oxide continuously started to decrease in the U.S. until a recent resurgence in popularity following a 2010 publication statement encouraging increased availability of nitrix for labor analgesia by the American College of Nurse Midwives and approval of a delivery system by the FDA in 2012. Now, you got to admit, that's some pretty crazy history, huh? And again, I'm a big fan of the epidural. It has a role, but some patients may not want something that invasive or may have a contraindication to it. And as we mentioned before, yes, I am and IV narcotics are great, but some women don't like that very sedating feeling that comes with it. The benefit of nitrous oxide is that it's very fast acting and very fast to stop acting. As soon as you remove the mask, its effects is almost entirely gone. And so that's a nice way to give patients self-control over their analgesic ability. If your location is looking to include nitrous oxide in the array of analgesias that's offered for patients, then remember that use requires a multidisciplinary involvement of anesthesiology, of the obstetrician, neonatology, nursing, risk management, and even the facilities management person to make sure that the equipment is housed and stored correctly. Success increases when all stakeholders are involved with this discussion and the development of local policies and protocols. CMS also designates the chief of anesthesiology as the ultimate responsible person for all anesthetic and sedation policies and procedures in a hospital. So make sure to include them in these discussions and drafting of the PNPs. Local policy or protocol development may also allow for a labor nurse or a nurse midwife to initiate nitrous oxide for a patient, but ultimately the patient should have enough physical ability to hold the mask in place and remove it when desired. The typical concentration, as we mentioned earlier, is 50% nitrous oxide co-administered with 50% of oxygen. As a quick guide that the patient is doing well, they should be able to have normal responses to verbal stimulation. So this anesthetic option qualifies as minimal sedation. 
We're going to talk about mechanism of action and some specific caveats in just a minute. But for the actual administration, remember, this is typically done in a 50-50 mixture. 50% mix of nitrous oxide and 50% oxygen. This is blended from two separate cylinders or it usually comes in a pre-mixed single cylinder. Remember that this is typically done in a self-administered fashion, either with a face mask or a mouthpiece, and it has an on-demand valve. Also, it's important that there is limited exposure to others and in the environment. Because nitrous oxide is considered a basically a greenhouse gas, so you'd have to make sure that the room and the unit have a way to capture any excess gas that may have escaped from the room. It's rare, but again, most of these come with a scavenger system to account for any remaining gas that's left in the room or in the immediate environment. Now, before we get into mechanism of action, a quick word about safety. Yeah, well, it's safe. It's safe for both mother and the child. But remember that this is not meant to be used throughout the entire duration of labor, right? It's meant to be used on demand as needed with other coping mechanisms, position changes, and other ways to address pain as those are utilized as well because this is meant to be used on demand. Again, not continuous use because it's as necessary for short periods of time. And we're going to get into a very specific and weird issue with prolonged use at the end of the podcast. It's rare, but yeah, this has to do with vitamin B12. Super weird, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. But remember, it is effective as an agent. We'll talk about efficacy again in just a minute. And it is safe. Regarding newborn safety, nitrous oxide rapidly crosses the placenta, but it also has rapid elimination by the neonate upon commencement of breathing. So he just breathes it off, which is great. And regarding maternal safety, Well, nitrous oxide does have properties that are desirable for labor analgesia. Its low blood solubility and minimal metabolism allows for a rapid effect and low tissue absorption. This is typically in effect within about 60 seconds of application, and as soon as the mask is removed, the effect is almost as quickly gone. Effects start again quick and end quick, which is a big advantage for some patients. Now, some adverse effects may happen. Everything has some potential side effect. And the most common of it is nausea and vomiting. Nausea is one of the most common side effects for women using nitrous oxide for labor analgesia with an incidence that's been reported anywhere from about 5% to 45% and vomiting from about 0% to 16%. So patients should be made aware of that and or given an antiemetic before use. Other side effects may include dizziness, drowsiness, and headache. Remember that clinical pearl that this is meant to be used on demand as needed and punctuated in time, not as continuous use. And the reason is really tied to one kind of weird metabolic issue, okay? This is a strange side effect of nitrous oxide, and it has to do with vitamin B12 levels. Nitrous oxide rapidly crosses the placenta. A one to three hour nitrous oxide exposure inactivates methionine synthetase in both the mother and the fetus. Human placental methionine synthetase activity also decreases in laboring women that inhale nitrous oxide, and this can happen within minutes to hours, with a faster decrease in women with lower vitamin B12 levels. 
Now, given the high rate of nitrous oxide that's used in many countries and has been used for decades, it's actually uncertain, though, if this potential for decrease of B12 levels is of any clinical significance. But you know us here at Clinical Pearls, we have to give you both sides of the issue and try to give everything that's rounded and complete. So, yeah, it does have this kind of weird side effect that it can affect vitamin B12 levels, but it's unclear if that actually means anything. So this is a perfect example of something that you find on a bench test uh, has unclear clinical application. Because like, all right, prolonged use of nitrous oxide, like over hours, may decrease the enzyme that leads to vitamin B12. Okay, but women shouldn't be using this thing for hours. Remember, we're talking about spot use on demand as needed. And so it's never been reported to be an actual complication or really an actual thing. But again, we're just giving you all the information because that's what we're about. So as of now, if anybody ever asks you, is there any weird issues with nitrous oxide use? Well, outside of the typical issues of like potentially some nausea and vomiting and headache and dizziness. Well, with excessive prolonged use, it could be tied to decreased vitamin B12 levels. But again, the true neonatal impact of that intrapartum as opposed to the entire pregnancy is probably an academic discussion and not one of clinical significance. If you're so inclined and you really want to investigate this whole issue of methionine synthetase activity and nitric oxide and vitamin B12, knock yourself out. I read it and it's kind of boring. <laughs> when the, the take-home message is, it's unclear if there's any real clinical significance if nitrous oxide is used as it's intended for brief periods of time, on demand only, intrapartum. But a great resource for this is out of British Journal of Anesthesia back in 1992. And the lead author is Landon. And the title of that publication is Influence of Vitamin B12 Status on the Inactivation of Methionine Synthetase by Nitrous Oxide. All right, podcast family, when we come back, we're going to talk about the mechanism of action, how this thing works, and if it actually does work at the bedside. In other words, what's its efficacy? Let's talk about that next. Nitrous oxide works by releasing endogenous opioid polypeptide compounds. Yeah, it releases endorphins. It also releases dopamine in the mother's brain. Now, the analgesic efficacy of this is directly tied to its direct application. Now, remember, this is a good analgesic. It's not an anesthetic. Remember, those words mean something. If you want true anesthesia, that's where a regional option comes in, like an epidural. But this is a good analgesic option. Something else to consider is that its application isn't just intrapartum. I mean, it's also a good tool during uh, repair of a laceration in addition to local anesthesia. If you have to do a manual evacuation of clots, this is where this can come in, uh, or uterine exploration for any retained uh, you know, parts of placenta. This is where nitrous also has a role. So it's not just intrapartum, but potentially also could be used in the third stage of labor in the immediate postpartum interval uh, for any kind of evaluation or assessment that needs to be done and local just isn't cutting it. In terms of efficacy, if you're ever asked, is this rival in its pain reduction to an epidural? No, no way. Of course not. I mean, an epidural is the top shelf, right? That's the best. That's the gold standard. 
Studies that have compared nitrous oxide with systemic opioids for labor pain control have been few and tend to be poor quality. Studies that compared nitrous with Demerol or dimorphine found similar and minimal reductions in pain scores with either technique. Remifentanil, however, was found to provide more effective analgesia compared to nitrous, but on the visual analog scale, it really wasn't all that dramatic. The study found that on that 0 to 10 scale, remifentanil reduced pain up to 1.5 points, whereas nitrous reduced pain 0.5 points. Again, not big dramatic changes. A 2019 European Society of Anesthesiology Task Force on Nitrous Oxide recommended that nitrous remain a good option for analgesia in labor, provided that the patient was able to self-apply and knew its limitations in pain control, but wasn't yet ready to accept other options that were a little bit more invasive. In other words, I'm not saying to get rid of IV or IM narcotics or avoid the epidural. Not at all. Equally as important as an agent's ability to take away pain is the satisfaction score scores of the users, and several studies have reported improved maternal satisfaction with the use of nitrous oxide in labor. The whole purpose of this episode is just to educate on nitrous oxide as another available tool that may be attractive for some patients. There's a role for an epidural, there's a role for IM and IV narcotics, just like there's a role for nitrous oxide in the appropriately motivated patient who knows the limits of this as an analgesic, not as an anesthetic. As we near the end of the episode, let's just summarize what the American Society of Anesthesiologists Committee on Obstetric Anesthesia has to say about inhaled nitrous oxide during labor. Quote, Nitrous oxide is a valuable alternative to neuraxial analgesia. Nitrous oxide is safe when used at a 50-50 concentration with oxygen, and its safety record is based on not combining nitrous oxide with other sedating agents. End quote. This is something that ACOG also piggybacked on, and I'm going to tell you what their statement is in just a minute. But all to say that the American Society of Anesthesiologists does recognize nitrous oxide as in an alternative analgesic option for some patients who are motivated and interested in this option. All right. Well, speaking about ACOG, they released that same cautionary tale of nitrous oxide being used concomitantly with a narcotic in July of 2021. This was issued as a practice advisory, and the wording is just exactly what the American Society of Anesthesiology said. Quote, Based on the concern for potential maternal adverse consequences, co-administration of systemic opioids or sedatives and hypnotics and inhaled nitrous oxide for labor analgesia is not recommended, end quote. Now, remember, that's that they should not be used together. What some protocols have established is we're going to start with nitrous oxide first, and then when that's over, then we're going to stepwise progress to IV narcotics or IM uh, analgesics, and then when that's done, then move up to epidurals. But the idea is don't use them together, all right? So yes, if you use one, you can still use the other. You just can't do it together. So just to be clear, use of nitrous does not preclude the use of IV narcotics. It just cannot be used at the same time. Traditionally, nitrous is used first because once you stop it, then it's quickly removed, removed from the body. And then you can move on to IV or IM narcotics. Now, there's parenteral opioids. 
but just be cautious with the reverse. In other words, if first IV or IM opioids are used, it has to be ensured that the patient is awake, not sedated, that the effect of the opioid is now gone from the body, typically at least two hours since last administration, before starting now with nitrous. Okay, so don't use them together, but they are not mutually exclusive during labor itself. They're mutually exclusive for its use at the time, but you can still use IM and IV narcotics if you're done with nitrous and moving on to something else. You just can't use them at the same time. All right, fine. I think we've nailed that point to the ground. And lastly, as we wrap this up, a quick word about the position statement from the American College of Nurse Midwives. As you would guess, yes, they're very nitrous friendly. I mean, they endorse this. You can find their position statement online, and I'll post a link to that within our list of references that we'll post on our Facebook page. But in short, as they say, quote, women should have access to a variety of measures to assist them in coping with the challenges of labor. Among these should be nitrous oxide analgesia, which is commonly used in many other countries. Research has supported the reasonable efficacy, safety, and unique and beneficial qualities of nitrous oxide as an analgesic for labor and its use as a widely accepted component of quality maternity care, end quote. Oh, and the academic person in me just loves their wording. I mean, they said it exactly as they should. Notice they said analgesic effect, not anesthetic effect. Ah, love it. Anyway, that's the very academic stuff, but the truth is there's meaning in those words. Remember, nitrous oxide is not an anesthetic. It's an analgesic intrapartum. And so that word has true value and it's used appropriately in their position statement. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the kind of weird history of nitrous oxide. Is that wild or what? I mean, the maker of the Colt 45 handgun got his money to make that prototype gun through nitrous oxide parties. Crazy. Anyway, I love medical history. I think it's fascinating where we've been. And again, if you don't know where you've been, you don't really know where you're going. So I love including that in our podcast episodes when it's applicable. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.